0: speculation about this being a cia job seems pretty unlikely at this point because one we know they would never reach out to the fbi and offer (laughs) to share Uh, but there's also you know i think i think it's fair to say that there's certainly something going on behind the scenes here it's just weird in fact it's it's this crazy mix of mission impossible oceans 11 and austin powers and (laughs) uh, i don't know i don't know that we'll ever fully understand actually what went on or, or
1: Welcome to Episode 257 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, And a disclaimer uh, (laughs) uh, courtesy of Mrs. Baker, Uh, the views expressed here do not uh, uh, represent those of our spouses, our organizations, our clients, uh, our friends, or anybody else who knows us. Uh, uh, It's uh, just us out here. Um, Joining me for the News Roundup, uh, Paul Hughes of Council and Steptoe's Brussels, office. Uh, he does competition and privacy law there. Klon Kitchen, who's a senior fellow for technology and national security and science policy at the Heritage Foundation. And uh, Nick Weaver, who needs no introduction at this point, uh, uh, who does all things computer at UC Berkeley. Uh, uh, welcome, Nick. Uh, great to have you get back. Thank you. I'm Stuart Baker uh, the host and chief chief provocateur uh, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program I went to a thing gave a, a, a moderated a panel for a bunch of uh, uh, technology fellows who uh, wanted to learn more about law and technology policy uh, uh, at the National Security Institute over the weekend and uh, asked them, how many people listen to the podcast and about half of them raised their hands. And then one of them kind of embarrassingly said, yeah. And I thought from listening to you that you were a lot younger. <laughs> so uh, to which I said, yeah, actually I can't get much older. Uh, the stories of the day. Uh, uh, the story that we loved the last time is just getting weirder. These are the guys who broke into the North Korean embassy uh, uh, in um, uh, Spain and had uh, you know, they were disorganized enough to let some woman get away, uh, and then had presence of mind enough to actually send an Asian guy to the front door to say to the police, No, there's no problem here. Uh, just the usual, uh, weirdness at uh, the North Korean embassy and the police bought it. Now they've, uh, there's more data on what they did and how they got away. Klan, uh, uh, can you tell us the story? Yeah. So
0: as you mentioned, Last month, 10 people broke into a North Korean embassy in Spain. They tied up the staff, took a number of hard drives and other materials, stole at least three embassy vehicles, and then they managed to sneak out of Spain with at least one of the perpetrators apparently making their way back to the United States, where they then reportedly offered to turn over some of the stolen information to the FBI. And uh, according to a Spanish investigator, a, a judge there, the break-in was done by members of a group called the Kiel Lima Civil Defense Group which is reportedly dedicated to the liberation of North Korea. Now, what's even more strange is that the group has retained a long-term uh, or a long-time state department lawyer to represent them and the FBI is not currently responding to any questions about uh, a possible investigation. And so, you know, two two key points I think here. One, the original speculation about this being a CIA job seems Pretty unlikely at this point, because one, we know they would never reach out to the FBI and offer to share. (laughs) Uh, But there's also, you know, I think I think it's fair to say that there's certainly something going on behind the scenes here. It's just weird. In fact, it's it's this crazy mix of Mission Impossible, Ocean's Eleven and Austin Powers. And uh, I don't know know that we'll ever fully understand actually what went on or, or why.
1: Yeah, I, I, for for there was a moment there when I thought they, you know, they bought replica guns. They didn't even have real guns, uh, yeah. and uh, I thought, you know, maybe this is somebody funded by the CIA that the CIA doesn't trust, so they wouldn't let them take real guns in. <laughs> I don't know, uh, but yes. no, I, 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 think it it was just a, uh, uh, as you say, an a, a, a Austin Powersy. Uh, version of uh, a liberation movement. I do think we have to worry. The North Koreans are uh, pretty committed to killing people that they don't like. Uh, And if these folks are in the United States, uh, uh, the North Koreans uh, could easily look for ways to kill them here.
0: Yeah, that's right. And and look, obviously, there's a broader context going on here between the United States and North Korea that so far, this doesn't seem to have um, kind of disrupted. But I mean, at the point where we have Pyongyang assassinating people in the United States, that probably will factor in.
1: Yep. Nick, Hal Martin has finally pleaded guilty and he's pleaded guilty to a relatively modest uh, charge compared to the espionage charges that were originally contemplated. Uh, What do we know Uh, that we didn't before now that he's uh, uh, pleaded guilty?
2: Very little. That's the remarkable thing, that Hal Martin basically pled guilty to being a data pack rat. And uh, for those of you who are watching the shadow brokers, he was arrested after the shadow brokers data dump, but it may have just been that they looked for things and found him that way. Be be it's starting to, teach, to look like it,
1: right? He had this that one weird tweet that could have been a, an effort to unload his uh, data but uh, doesn't seem to have been followed up on but may have brought him to their attention.
2: Yes, mm-hmm. and at the same time, not being able to prove espionage, they could still easily prove – enough data pack rat violations to impose a much longer sentence. Yeah. So I think this is a good resolution all around, except for people like me who want to know how the bleep did the shadow brokers get all that data they dumped.
1: Yeah. I it, it, I, I suspect they didn't get it from Martin because if they did, the, the, this sentence would be longer. This is already a long sentence for a pack rat, appropriately longer because pack rats are no longer just taking home Files that they work on at home, they're taking home terabytes of data and that's, you know, that's much more dangerous. But uh, I think they decided they couldn't prove and maybe weren't even sure that he had uh, uh, done anything other than take it home and store it. Agreed. Okay. So Scipius uh, is in the news, and it's not the United States for a change. Uh, I asked Paul to get on here because he does uh, practice in this area. The European Union is, I, I won't say adopting, because that's not right. They are promoting member state investment reviews that resemble Scipius. Uh, Paul, uh, what does this amount to?
3: Uh, Stuart, you're absolutely right. It's the promotion of national measures with the capacity for the commission to intervene with opinions in particular situations. So it's a regulation which in theory applies across the EU uh, and is directly applicable. But I think I'll start with some of the things it does not do. So it does not harmonize um, FDI screening uh, at national level within the EU. And when you say FDI,
1: you mean foreign direct investment, right?
3: Yes, foreign direct investment, and it doesn't impose a single EU-wide mechanism for reviewing foreign direct investment, nor does it require member states to adopt such a screening mechanism, but it does, as you say, form part of a general push by the EU Commission to have member states take foreign direct investment screening more seriously, and it contains a number of sort of mechanisms for notifying member states when a screening process is taking place in a given member state. It has to inform other member states where there's a possible threat to security or public order. And it also has to inform the commission. And then there's a sort of complicated set of dialogues that occur between the member state screening, those member states affected, and the commission where it gets involved where you get commentary and possible commission opinion being given that the screening member state has to pay regard to. So it, it, it does increase flows of uh, information as between the various member states that are either screening or are somehow affected. But it, it doesn't mandate any particular approach to
2: foreign
1: direct investment where there's an effect on what i would what i would say uh from this uh, uh, given my cynical view of the european (laughs) commission is that the european commission wants to horn in on on these investment reviews and doesn't really have much uh by in the way of turf here and so it's kind of nibbling around the edges of the problem just so that it can Keep its oar in. Uh, Is that a fair uh, assumption?
3: Yes, it is. I mean, the Commission does have a more active role where it thinks that a foreign direct investment affects EU projects or programs, and then its opinion can be more forceful because the individual member state has to uh, give utmost regard or take utmost account of the EU uh, Commission opinion. But that's, as you say, a narrow segment of investment opportunities. And as you rightly say, it's really the opinion sort of kind of getting involved from the sidelines. And I suppose because it's a regulation, at some point, it will get interpreted by the Court of Justice, which might use its judicial magic wand to give the commission greater leverage than the regulation anticipates, perhaps.
1: Given that there's this, uh, you know, this complicated uh, uh, turf questions, uh, uh, what do you think the the upshot over the next couple of years for people who are uh, engaged in making these investments is going to be? Is this going to change and bring greater coordination to uh, the investment reviews in various countries in Europe?
3: Well, it'll be anchored to a national set of criteria and processes, but it it will probably lead to... More delay and a greater need for tighter choreography because there's an up to 45 day delay while the dialogue and the opinions get uh, shared and issued. So I think it it will mean that those who are advising investors will need to drill down even more carefully to look at um, the the nature of the investor and whether it's state owned and the the type of investment they're making. And then review this against a possibly longer time frame within which these clearances are going to have to occur.
1: And if Brexit, if we get a, if we get an ugly, ragged um, uh, uh, Brexit, uh, does that mean that the Brits are free to have their own investment review rather than following the regulation?
3: They won't be subject to regulation, but in this, in a direct sense, of having to be the communicator or the recipient of an opinion from the Commission. But they will be subject to the. Regulation, in the sense they'll now be a third country whose investments, if they're through a, a state-controlled entity, would need to be subject to review. But the thing about the UK is that they are bearing down on foreign direct investment very, very aggressively. So of any of the states, uh, I think that's one of the ones, along with Germany, to watch if you're making investments, whether you're worried about the regulation or just natural national rules the uk uh, is anticipating having some very tight rules very soon
1: okay so we're going to see that no matter what uh, here's here's a story that i took a deep personal interest in but i'm going to ask nick to kick it off uh, asus the taiwanese computer company uh, was subjected to a remarkably sophisticated and dangerous cybersecurity attack that you know puts a target on A bunch of people who have ASUS uh, gear, but it's not clear exactly which people. Nick?
2: Well, it's really an amazing story. So somebody broke into ASUS, got their cryptographic signing keys, broke into the ASUS update servers, pushed out a compromised update to hundreds of thousands of ASUS customers, This compromised update checked a list of computer MAC addresses that's very small, on the order of 300 or so, and it's known what these MAC addresses are because although the MAC addresses were hashed, you can basically brute force it all. And only on those cases would a second stage attack tool be downloaded. And this is just... Amazing, because first of all, you have to be a very sophisticated actor to have pulled this off. But also, MAC addresses are basically computer serial numbers that you don't see outside the local network. So this attacker probably had to break into some sales structure, too, to know which uh, systems are being sent where
1: because otherwise said, they, they they to otherwise get the number they would have had to have physical ac- access to the computer and if they had that they wouldn't need this exploit
2: yes or at least local network access so they had all this information and yet they were unwilling to do what anybody else would do which is download a second stage validator that then says is this who I actually want to target so not only is this almost certainly a nation state actor, but the reticence to even do a second stage downloader on ones that you don't have the Mac address means dollars to donuts. It's a five eyes.
1: So that's interesting The the, the speculation has been that this has a lot of forensic ties to a, a past Chinese intrusion. In fact, the guys who did the uh, CC cleaner uh, uh, attack one, at least one of, or, or two of which uh, um, were aimed at compromising ASUS. Uh, it, uh, so uh, it's possible that this is a follow-on to that supply chain attack. Uh, but uh, you're right that the fine-tuned, tailored attack is suggestive of, you know, a lawyer in the loop. Uh, and that does not sound like, uh, like China. It might also be a sign that China is finally getting serious – about trying not to get caught. Because the other reason that you narrow it down is you want this to be a very quiet attack uh, that doesn't make headlines because nobody sees it because you're only attacking a few hundred uh, machines in the end.
2: But you can do that almost as well with a second-stage validator. That's the thing. You download a small little program that just sits in memory, does a little evaluation, and that's going to be a very hard target to catch, even for somebody like Kaspersky.
1: Is it possible? Is it possible that this is a? These are targets that are pretty carefully watching mm-hmm. where their systems go and what their systems do on the internet, so that the the the, the uh, attackers knew they couldn't go out often to do anything, to download anything, and that it would have to look legit when they did, and that's why they, uh, they had to build more of their checks into that first downloaded program?
2: Potentially, it's really interesting. The other thing is, ASIS really bungled the response. So Kaspersky notified ASIS in late February. ASIS still didn't revoke the signing key after Kaspersky went public, a key that they now knew was compromised. And I think overall, this will damage ASIS as a business substantially. Yeah, I,
1: because... I, I I I think you're right. I mean, it, it, they they do not look uh, like they handled this very well. Uh, and i should say uh, i call i've always called them asus because somebody must have told me that was what uh, the way they pronounce it uh, you, you you obviously call it uh, by the american name do you have a uh, a reason to think i'm wrong or you're right or the other way around nope okay uh, so we'll just keep we'll just keep talking in cross purposes i agree with you on the the impact on asus I, a couple of thoughts if i were the justice department I would find a justification to subpoena all of the records that Asus has about MAC addresses of its customers. Because if they have somewhere a MAC address for a machine that they sent out to a customer, which they might, then all of the targeting could have been done off of their records. Uh, and of course. That, that strikes me. I, I think they should... Uh, The U.S. government has an interest in knowing whether any of its computers were on the target list, uh, and they shouldn't have to to go checking their own uh, MAC addresses. They should find out exactly what what these hash values are and what uh, uh, records ASUS has on the buyers.
2: Yes, and at the same time, there is a risk that if it is Five Eyes, ASUS would have that information. ASUS could go public and give information about who was actually being targeted. Yes. Okay. Um,
1: so, so maybe maybe uh, GCHQ should subpoena that <laughs> <laughs> Uh Yeah. Fair. Fair enough. The other the, the other observation I have on this case is uh, ASUS is already subject to a uh, uh, an FTC consent decree because they screwed up uh, in the past on privacy. What this tells this is this is why I keep saying. Uh, For anybody out there who is working on privacy legislation at the federal level, the FTC cannot be the only regulatory body that uh, uh, weighs in or has authority in this area. This is now a national security matter, and um, we shouldn't be relying on a bunch of privacy lawyers at the FTC to decide how aggressively to pursue a national security breach. So um, they, 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 The FTC needs to find a way to acknowledge that there are times when it should be deferring to the executive branch on national security implications of its cybersecurity program or its privacy program, whatever you want to call it. And if we're going to give them that authority in legislation, we ought to make it clear that it's subject to that constraint. All right, that's I'm I'm done lobbying the uh, uh, the listeners. Uh, the FTC uh, speaking. Of the FTC uh, is also digging in deep on the privacy practices of ISPs. They've sent out very detailed uh, requests for information, and probably that's just the opening gun uh, to seven ISPs. Nick,
2: good. <laughs> the, one of the things I've learned over a decade plus of network measurement is ISPs will do really weird things in ways that would negatively affect their users. And one area of note is abuse of data that would arguably fall under the wiretap act or is very sensitive. And Unlike some of the other misbehaviors where we're able to develop tools to detect them, this is the kind of thing that it has to take government investigation to know what is being retained and what is being analyzed and what is being sold. And I think this is a very good thing. And this is what regulators are supposed to do, gather information to know if there's a problem. Yeah,
1: I think that they they have picked ISPs in part, to establish their jurisdiction uh, because the FCC has some jurisdiction in this area and the FTC has to make it clear that this is theirs. But I I will invoke here uh, one of Baker's laws, which is that you won't really know how evil a technology can be until the engineers who are deploying it start to fear for their jobs. So (laughs) what you should be looking for is an ISP in trouble. And they are doing the worst things with the data. Um, and the, uh, they'll tell you what uh, uh, other people would do if they were equally in trouble.
2: The thing is, yep. is we've seen ISPs do truly evil things without necessarily getting in trouble. So we've seen ah,
1: ISPs yeah, fair
2: that man in the middle searches to Google, Yahoo, and Bing <laughs> in order to change search results. We've seen ISPs man-in-the-middle communications to Amazon and others to silently hijack and insert affiliate tags so that the ISP would get affiliate credit.
1: Don't you think that all of this is a a reflection? It's not that they're fearing for their jobs. But if you're an ISP, you're enabling the entire internet economy and you are getting – there's an English – Uh, expression for this that ends with all, but basically you're not getting very much of the internet economy. Uh, And uh, this is kind of, uh, those kinds of things are engineers trying to scratch back, you know, spare change from the massive uh, economic boom that has been uh, let loose by the internet, don't you think?
2: Yeah, but uh, that doesn't make it nice. The bill I pay to uh, (laughs) Comcast—they're making a ton of money.
1: Okay, (laughs) this is also a data scandal of a sort, but one that uh, both the Obama administration and the uh, Trump administration missed the first time around. Which is to say that the Chinese, uh, a, a Chinese investor, has access to all the data of. Anybody who has gone online to use Grindr to find somebody whose uh, sexual minority tastes match theirs, right? LGBTQ uh, meetups are through Grindr. And now all that data is in the hands of the Chinese. And waking up late, Cifius has now said, uh, excuse me, you're going to have to sell that company. We're not willing to have you uh, uh, do that, uh, ha- have access to that, that data. You kind of wonder where they were when this deal went through, although I don't think uh, uh, Grindr or the uh, Chinese investor notified Cifias, but still, if you're worried about personal data, as they seem to have been, uh, you'd think they would have caught it earlier. Klav?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's two kind of key points on this. One, uh, on the Chinese side, it it demonstrates. No, look, I make I make a an assumption that uh, this material would have been used by the Chinese government for all kinds of uh, illicit purposes. Uh, and, and to that end, it, it helps underscore the reality that the Chinese are continuing to pursue their kind of thousand grains of sand strategy of uh, identifying and collecting material that they can use for uh, you know, furthering their own, their own objectives. But then on the, on the other side of the equation, the U.S. side, it demonstrates yet again our slowness to pick up on this type of strategy and to begin defending against it. Now, I mean, Cipius has a tough job. There's a lot of investment going on. Uh, Chinese investment in Silicon Valley and throughout the tech community in general is a is a high priority issue that I think we're getting smarter on. But you know, this is this has been a concern for us in the United States at, at least since 2015, when we had reportedly the Chinese government exploiting personal data. Out of uh, the of personnel management. Uh, and then when you factor in the fact that they had been there, you know, for over a year, even prior to that, uh, I think we begin to see some real legitimate sophistication on their side as they're pursuing uh, these types of efforts. Yeah, founder is just the latest effort, and uh, we're going to see more of this. I,
1: I'm I'm not sure I necessarily ascribe this to a, a Chinese campaign because there are plenty of Chinese social media companies. The only competition that Silicon Valley has in social media is the Chinese companies, and they are. Uh, locked in competition with each other as well. Uh, uh, so it is possible that somebody uh, in China just thought uh, they wanted to own this um, uh, part of the business, um, but the risk from the point of view of the U.S. government is obvious. Uh, uh, let me ask this question. The, the, the article goes on to say because there was an acquisition, Scipius has jurisdiction over a grinder. They don't have access over TikTok, which is not to be confused with Yik Yak, uh, which was the um, uh, social media of choice about three years ago for a a nanosecond. Uh, But it is a very popular uh, uh, kind of 10 million users in the U.S. social media uh, system that was basically – built from the ground up as a greenfield service in the United States by a Chinese company. And uh, uh, I'm not sure CFIUS can do anything about that.
0: Yeah. So I'll, uh, two points. I'll answer that last one first. I think that the point you're raising is exactly um, the, the challenge that CFIUS continues to uh, experience that, you know, okay, so there's not an acquisition. There's a kind of from the ground development effort here, how does CFIUS or some other equivalent government agency, Uh, gain the proper um, oversight of those issues, because that's going to continue happening. We're going to have these types of organic growth capabilities coming out of the Valley and otherwise uh, that are going to constitute, I think, equally difficult challenges. So there's that. But on on your latter part, I don't know that I assume that the Chinese investors would have um, knowingly been providing information to China, although that's certainly possible, but the Chinese government has all the legal and technical capacity it would require to, once it became aware of that um, that investment, to go after that material, regardless of whether the investment group wanted them to or not. And so that's why I just make the assumption that that material would have ultimately ended up in uh, in Chinese government hands.
1: Yeah. Uh, as for uh, TikTok and um, Greenfield uh, uh, social media uh, efforts uh, uh, coming from China to the United States. Uh, yet another reason why the FTC's investigation priorities should be uh, set in part by the national security concerns of the executive branch. Uh, um, I'm, I'm a lot more interested in where, the, where TikTok stores its data and uh, how often it is asked to produce it uh, by the Chinese government than I am in some of the other uh, more headline-generating uh, uh, inquiries the FTC could be pursuing. This is kind of a bad news week. Uh, the European Parliament has passed the copyright directive. It's it's ugly. Uh, Nick, uh, uh, tell us the, about the ugliest pieces of it.
2: Well, the ugliest pieces are that everybody is screaming bloody murder about it, and they still went through with it. And some ministers of parliament are saying, oh, wait, uh, I pressed the wrong button, and that was actually enough to switch the vote. But, oh, well, it's going to basically split – complete the split of the internet. The the general belief –
1: let me just ask: is, when 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 they say they they voted wrong, they meant they voted for it, and they meant to vote against it. So they're trying they they, they want to go back and tell their constituents, "Oh, I was against that before I voted for it."
2: Correct. <laughs> and under the rules, if you fat finger the wrong vote, you can say that you corrected it, but it doesn't change the outcome of the vote. So <laughs> you just gotta wonder.
1: Yeah. So this is the the, the snippets are now uh, prohibited in Google News. uh, And maybe even more important, uh, all of the massive uh, censorship tools that uh, Silicon Valley has been uh, uh, developing to deal with ISIS and uh, um, uh, white racism uh, uh, will now be deployed to make sure that Four-year-old boys are not dancing to print songs on YouTube. Uh, uh, Those things will have to be blocked before they actually even make it onto YouTube at risk of liability for Google. So lots more uh, authority in the hands of uh, Hollywood and uh, the recording industry who are not noted for their responsibility in deploying that authority.
2: And also a lot more authority for Google and the big internet companies that will be able to comply with things. It will be oh, not yes. something.
1: Yeah, the, the little guys will never be able to do this. Uh, the, the Europe, Europe is killing off any European competition for these guys with this uh, approach. Two quick things. Um, HUD is suing Facebook. For violating the Fair Housing Act because of its micro-targeting, uh, which enabled you to say, "I'd like this to go to African American interest groups," uh, I and if you were advertising a house, uh, you could say, "Well, actually, I'd like to exclude African American interest groups," and that was a legitimate uh, request uh, for your ad, but clearly. Uh, Pretty questionable under uh, housing discrimination law, um, uh, Nick. Uh, uh, you're you're a unenthusiastic about microtargeting generally, aren't you?
2: Yes, because microtargeting in general requires a huge amount of surveillance infrastructure. It's questionable how much better the microtargeting is in actual effectiveness, but it is really good at hiding ads from oversight, so you'd never even know about offers that you did not see, and so for example, Alex Stamos and company have a really good proposal that bans too fine a micro-targeting for political ads, because that would really up the transparency involved.
1: So I, I, I have a, a different take on this. I noticed that one of the things that seems to be part of HUD's case is they say, you have a feature in which people can tell you, here's here are my current customers. Here's what they look like. I'd like to advertise to an audience of people who look as much like them as possible, because those are the people who obviously like my product. I, that does not strike me as discriminatory, but it could end up having a discriminatory effect if it turns out that your customers are uh more of one ethnic group than another and in many cases that'll be true and uh uh, treating that as discrimination strikes me as a step down a road that we're probably going down anyway although i'm not sure it's a good idea of saying we're going to judge algorithms just based on the impact that they have, rather than on the intent that uh, uh, was behind them. And the fact that they're good at at finding customers is not a defense if they uh, seem to select more for one race or more gen- one gender uh, than another.
2: That's a really hard question. And I think that is one that needs a good policy discussion on both sides.
1: So I, we should do that. We, we, we should find – to, to my audience, if there are people who are really thoughtful on both sides of that issue, my impression is there are a lot of people who are very thoughtful on sticking it to algorithms and, and finding discrimination everywhere and maybe not so many who have questions about that. But we'll, uh, we'll, we'll do a, a, a segment on that if you suggest people that we should uh, invite on. Last topic. Jeff, Jeff Bezos's uh, security guy uh, a fellow named uh, De Becker uh, has written a uh, an op-ed for the Daily Beast saying in essence that all those uh, sexting uh, uh, messages and uh, you know uh, racy selfies that uh, uh, Bezos sent to his girlfriend uh, Even though you thought it was the girlfriend's brother and uh, American media, the National Enquirer sort of hinted that it was the girlfriend's brother, we believe it was the Saudi government that had access to his messages. And I don't know about you, Nick, but I I thought there was a lot of circumstantial evidence. Oh, Saudi government uh, uh, does a lot of uh, spying on a lot of people uh, and almost no forensics, which uh, considering – How much they must have paid this guy seems like an odd um, gap.
2: Agreed. And there's two things, though, in the favor. First of all, that AMI was so willing to out his mistress's brother as the source explicitly and multiple times. What journalist would so betray a source like that? And well, yours, This
1: is the National Enquirer we're talking about, so journalist is stretching yeah. the point.
2: <laughs> but the other thing is, is he strongly suggests, that is, uh, the mistress's brother, that the inquirer came to him already knowing a lot of the information, suggesting that this was an attempt at parallel construction. So that's one. Two, there's an open question. Is it that they did not reveal the forensics? Because those are definitely relevant to the ongoing criminal investigation. Or are the forensics not there? Because there should be forensics on on this. Yeah, you
1: can't get access to somebody's phone and not leave some clues that you were there, I don't think.
2: Or at least it's very hard. And like the NSO group, which is where Saudi buys their stuff, it's really good, but it's not undetectable. And, for example, if you have a phone that you think is suspicious, you monitor the communications, and then you can actually probe the servers that it's talking to to see if one of them is an NSO command and control server because command and control servers behave slightly differently. But at the same time, if you do have forensics that say, it's say the NSO group. That really would be important from a investigatory standpoint. And I think there is a careful line that's being walked here of wanting to reveal that it's Saudi Arabia but not wanting to disrupt a a reported FBI investigation.
1: That's. It is possible that that's what's going on. That they handed over the forensics to the FBI and let them uh, uh, take it forward. Although it wouldn't be hard to say. And I found forensic evidence on the phone that uh, uh, I've turned over to the FBI, and that doesn't really say much more than. But it certainly does tell us that uh, uh, he's got something more than circumstantial evidence. And I will. I will just say. Everybody's motives here are a little bit suspect, but you know, if you were hired as a private investigator for the world's richest man who says, "I've got this woman I'm about to marry, and her uh, my our intimate communications with her have been uh, compromised," find the bad guy, and you go back and say, "Oh yeah, the bad guy is your future brother-in-law." Uh, it's not the best message. It would be a lot better message to say, well, okay, so he, you can forgive him because he was really um, a collateral damage. It was really the Saudis who are out to get you. That's a better message for your client. If you're the, uh, if you're being paid a boatload of money by uh, uh, somebody to get to the bottom of this. So I think he might've had some motivation to uh, want to find somebody other than the brother-in-law or the future brother-in-law uh, as the, uh, the bad guy. Thanks to Paul Hughes. Thanks to Con Kitchen. Thanks to Nick Weaver for joining us. This has been episode 257 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Please, as I said, if you send us interview guest suggestions, including people who can get into this uh, uh, discrimination and uh, artificial intelligence and algorithm stuff with us, uh, please send it to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. And if they end up on the show, we will send you one of our highly coveted Cyberlaw Podcast mugs uh, uh, as soon as they come on the show. I did manage to get out uh, in Twitter all of the stories and then some that we covered today. So uh, if you follow at Stuart Baker uh, and like a story, uh, uh, if we get a bunch of likes on a particular story, we're much more likely to cover it. Uh, uh, Please leave a rating uh, on iTunes, on Google Play, wherever you uh, uh, download this from. Uh, Our uh, numbers of reviews are up this year over last. So uh, we're really pleased you're doing a great job. Uh, Upcoming, we've got Adam Segal of the Council on Foreign Relations and an expert in China cybersecurity uh, attacks. Uh, And on April 29, uh, uh, we're going to do an entirely Baker-free show, uh, all blockchain and cryptocurrency. uh, So uh, watch for that Show credits, um, Christy Jorge is the producer, Doug Pickett's our audio engineer, Michael Beaver is our assistant and editor, uh, and I am Stuart Baker, your host. Please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.